Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer on the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Relax while we infuse weird and wonderful science into your brain. I'm Larissa Savas. On this edition, we'll feature ant wars, petri dish patties and the Nikta Tech Fest. But first up, here's the news with Julianne Popple. know the scent of enemies. Ants live in highly organised societies and rely heavily on chemical cues to detect and identify individuals within their colony. Like a human fingerprint, each individual ant has its own particular chemical cocktail of odours that allows other ants to recognise it. The ability of ants to recognise colony versus non-colony individuals has long been recognised. However, scientists from the University of Melbourne say that colonies of the tropical weaver ant are able to collectively remember intruder or enemy ants from other colonies. In other words, if only one ant fights with an intruder, it retains that odour and passes this on to the rest of the colony. Catherine Gill, Mark Elgar and colleagues conducted a series of trials to determine the effect of familiarisation of individual ants on the behaviour of wild colonies. They did this by taking an individual ant from a nest placing it in a small arena and repeatedly exposing it to single ants from another nest. After this, they staged a fake ant invasion by placing 20 worker ants from the now familiar nest on or near the focal nest. The ants defending their colony reacted much more aggressively towards intruders from a nest that only some of their workers had been familiarised with compared to the interactions with non-familiar colonies in control trials. Professor Mark Elgar explained to Victoria Gill of BBC Nature that the whole colony were able to draw on the experience of one worker. He stated, Imagine you have an unsavoury experience with a particular group of people with a distinguishing feature. Perhaps they all wear the same coloured scarf of their football team. And you warned your colleagues to look out for people wearing that coloured scarf. One of the colleagues that heard you might subsequently tell another colleague who wasn't in the room when you made your comment. That colleague has acquired the information indirectly from the collective memory of you and your work colleagues. Change colleagues to ants and scarf colour to odour and you've got your story. But just how ants are able to pass on this information remains to be seen. In a country renowned for its love of a barbecue and a Sunday roast, it doesn't seem that a man for meat on this side of the planet is going to wane any time soon, let alone anywhere else. With our global population set to boom, the global demand for livestock is also set to boom. In fact, meat demand is predicted to double in the next 40 years. This will mean that not only more land and water will be required to support the growing animals, which is worrying considering that we are currently utilising 70% of all our agricultural capacity. But with the animals, methane emissions will naturally follow. 
Methane is one of the major contributors to greenhouse emissions, with methane gas being a hefty 20 times more potent than carbon dioxide. So how can we have our meat and eat it too? Well, thanks to a new project being funded by a wealthy anonymous individual, slaughtering animals for meat could be a thing of the past. A laboratory in the discipline of physiology at Maastricht University in the Netherlands is currently cultivating a beef burger patty from cow muscle tissue stem cells grown in a nutrient-rich culture medium containing fetal cow serum. Despite progress so far totaling merely thin sheets of cow muscle measuring 3 cm long, 1.5 cm wide and half a millimetre thick, the intention is to mince together and press 3,000 pieces of muscle, several hundred pieces of fatty tissue into a patty, to be cooked by British culinary superstar Heston Blumenthal of three Michelin-starred Fat Duck restaurant fame. With the price of this meaty concoction standing at a staggering $290,000, this is set to be the world's most expensive burger, outshining any truffle, foie gras and gold leaf garnished counterparts. However, if the product does succeed in terms of appearance, texture, taste and mass reproducibility at a considerably lower cost, the benefits are sure to outweigh any of these initial costs. I think that, that's a really interesting story. If you've been listening to Diffusion for a while, you know we've been following the whole evolution of lab-grown meat from when it was just bits of fish tissue to when they got their first bits of cow tissue. It doesn't look very appetising. It's the wrong colour. And, of course, just muscle doesn't taste as good, which is why they're doing fat as well now, to make it more like natural meat. One of the questions for me, of course, is, well, the nutrient serum is made from fetal cow serum, which is basically, it's made from blood. And in order to get enough blood to replace killing cows, that's a lot of blood. So either you're going to be bleeding cows and not killing them, or you're going to be killing cows, and this is blood that you'd be throwing away anyway because you're slaughtering cows for, for meat. It seems to me it's not entirely cruelty-free unless we bleed a lot of cows. And then, of course, the question is, would you eat lab-grown meat? So even though at the moment they're using fetal cow serum, this, the investigation and study is still in its early days, so maybe they'll get to the point where they can use other nutrient-rich media to grow the meat so that doesn't require harvesting serum from fetal cows. It's an interesting idea because if they can have a replacement for the blood, mm. then that is a blood replacement that they might also be able to use for growing all sorts of other things and for use in medicine. Because at the moment, there's no replacement for blood that works, that doesn't end up hurting people. If you can get nutrients for muscles and fat from something other than blood, maybe we should be eating that.
reports on the latest research projects showcased at the National Information and Communication Technology Australia Tech Fest. So I went to the Australian Technology Park in Redfern, where they showcased from 1pm to about 5.30 all of their latest research. We had speeches from Minister Conroy, we had speeches from the Chief Scientist for New South Wales and all sorts of dignitaries. And so it's interesting as I go around the state to hear how many state government entities see NICTA as a major resource. I personally see NICTA as a sort of as a place of great excellence and very exciting new ICT research and the ability to really engage with really large problems in ICT. But I have to say my colleagues in the state just see it as a really good place to solve really big problems involving data, information technology and communication. So I guess it's where you, where you come from that, that matters. The research group has divisions for software systems, networks, machine learning, computer vision, control and signal processing and optimization. I now listen to a recording in a very noisy Australian technology park filled with 600 attendees. I spoke with James Laird about his pain management implant. James Laird, that's L-A-I-R-D. Ian Moore. Nice to meet you, James. Pleasure. So, what you want to this spinal cord stimulation implant system to defeat chronic pain? That's right. Now, I'm personally interested because I have a back injury. So I guess one of my concerns, if I was to receive this sort of technology, is what are the risks of getting something so close to the spinal cord? Uh, well, obviously, in any implant close to the spinal cord, there is a risk of infection. Uh, so spinal cord stimulation systems don't actually penetrate the blood-brain barrier. There's a membrane that sits around your spine, the dura, and the electrode sits on the outside of that. So that's what gives rise to a lot of the problems with current stimulation systems where the cord, which is suspended in liquid inside the dura, is free to slosh around. And so it moves back and forth and up and down relative to the stimulation electrode. So that leads to over and under stimulation as people move around with their systems switched on. Right. And how do you handle that? Well, we have developed a technology which no one has had before, which is that we can actually record the signal that comes from the nerve fibers that we trigger when we stimulate. So, uh, one of the very simplest things we can do is simply to monitor the amplitude of that response that we get, which tells us roughly how many nerve fibers we're triggered, and then adjust our stimulation level to compensate and you know, give someone a, a consistent feeling. So you're actually measuring the pain they've got and the relief they're getting and adjusting to keep it constant. We're measuring how many nerves we stimulate. Uh, so we're not actually stimulating or measuring pain nerves. Okay. The way the system works is actually by stimulating sensory nerves that feel things like touch and pressure over the area or that go to the same area of tissue as the pain nerves. I see. So in a way, are you distracting people from the pain or you're masking? Well, it's, it's currently the mechanism of action is pretty poorly understood. So there is a bit of research going on into this. Um, the reason anyone tried this in the first place was going through the analogy of, oh, well, if something hurts and you rub it, then it hurts less. And so obviously they found that this does sort of seem to work, but uh, then went on to realize that they actually have no clue what the physiological mechanism is that stops the pain. 
And I mean, the closest thing most people would experience to this is the sort of tens stimulation that physiotherapists, physiotherapists will give you yeah. that I asked about earlier. Um, so is it, I guess if you don't know how it works, can you say it's related or it's just totally different? I would say it's quite different, um, given the, the pulsatile nature of TENS usually, and this, assuming it's not turned up too high, you know, you're not trying to walk around with it, won't give you muscle twitching feelings, it will give you a sort of pure tingling sensation, I'm told. Obviously not having experienced this, I can't really say too much. Yeah, I mean, my experience with TENS is that uh, it's a tingling and a prickling, and it can become uncomfortable if it's too intense but it depends on the person absolutely so we find that some people will get discomfort before they get you know muscle twitching and whatnot and some people will be the other way around they will say that's too much stimulation long before they have uh, physical or direct physiological effects right so you mentioned that human trials are going on right now is that right yes they are. no great so that's I'm just looking here at, at some of your models. You've got a wire that goes, as you were saying, just on the outside of the sacrum and the spinal cord. And you've got a little stimulator. Where would the stimulator be implanted? Well, in current systems, the stimulator package is pretty big. Uh, right, like we have a commercial one around here. Sure. So at the moment, they have to tunnel to your abdomen or your buttocks. Right. So they you know, take a big spike and make a hole and then stick the wire through it. <laughs> So awesome. <laughs> we're aiming to make stuff that is a fraction of the size. I mean, this is our first generation and we're hoping to go much smaller than that in the future. So you're going sort of like a small mobile phone all the way down to something smaller than um, an iPod Nano. Yeah, absolutely. So we want to build something that can be implanted next to the spine. Yes. Um, so that you don't have to have this really invasive tunneling procedure and also, you know, if it's nestled in between the bones on the back of your spine, you won't feel it as much, it won't stick into them. Terrific. Well, that's a very important project. Thank you very much. Excellent. Thank you very much. My pleasure. And that was James Laird, working on pain management implants at the National Information and Communications Technology Australia Research Group. Next, I spoke with Leif Hanlon, Director of Health at NICTA. As Director of Health, you're telling me you look at the digital side of health. That's correct. Yes, so what we're looking at is how do we use the information that's already available in the health system to allow clinicians to do their job, which is delivering care, rather than focusing on administrative tasks. How can we get nurses to focus on care rather than recording their clinical notes do that automatically. And so we have a number of projects working in that area. We have work on invasive fungal infections. So what we're doing there is using the existing text reports that the radiologist will write, and then using machine learning, finding key points in the text that indicate diseases or risk of disease within the hospital. And so from that, we can then suggest to a clinician there's a high risk or a low risk of infection, and this is the evidence from the report. So we're not simply flashing a light and saying, yes, no. The clinician can make their own decision based upon that, but we provide the evidence. And then we can also provide highlights and alerts as a hospital management system. So we can provide bed alerts, we can provide alerts to clinicians. We also work around the concept of clinical handover, so automatic speech-to-text recognition for nursing handover. And this is all wrapped up inside a large-scale living laboratory that we are building within ACT and across the nation around developing, prototyping, trialling and testing new electronic health systems. So data management and data provision 
living hell. So you're getting the machine learning is getting the big picture. Yes. And then being able to feed that back to the doctor. all the way down to the details, exactly. And so we do that in combination with the health practitioners. So we're working with Melbourne Health, we're at the Royal Melbourne Hospital, we work with large-scale multinational partners, vendors, as well as researchers and health jurisdictions to essentially join all the players together to work on one problem. So there's safety in hospitals and there's knowledge-based biological data analysis. So that's yes. they're, they're related projects. Right? Yes, those, we actually have a number of you, if you continue walking on, on yeah. the speech-to-text project, the National uh, E-Health Living Lab. There's a few of these around the idea of digital health. Thank well, you. Leif Hanlon, thank you very much. That was Leif Hanlon, Director of Health at NICTA. There was also a lot of data mining. Now, one of the things about NICTA is they don't just go off and do all their little research projects, but people talk to each other. So people from different research projects are allowed to go along to the labs of the other people or the offices of the other people and see what they're doing. And in so doing, find out whether what the other people are doing could possibly be applied to their work. So you see all this cross-disciplinary stuff within NICTA and where things developed in one area are being used in the other ones. And it's very interesting and very encouraging. They're looking at privacy. They're finding out what information are you leaking to the world when you use social networks and when you're using Wi-Fi. For example, your phone, when it connects to Wi-Fi or your laptop or your tablet, it actually tells the network the previous Wi-Fi spots you were using, which means you're leaving a trail every time you connect. And they can follow that trail they can identify you, and once they've identified you, they can look you up on social networks and get together a profile. So the software tells you how do you look to the world, how much information are you leaking, and then it can tell you where you should stem those leaks, which is useful. So if you're putting too much on Facebook or putting too much on Twitter or Flickr or wherever it is, and you're not happy with what you're putting out there, you can change it. I spoke with Leonard Rizik about software to write device drivers. Software that writes software and gets it right. You're working on automatic device driver synthesis, so it's software that writes software. Yes, that's correct. Uh, so our group is trying to create uh, reliable operating systems, operating systems that never fail. And uh, the reason why software fails is because programmers make mistakes, so bugs on software. So what we're doing instead is instead of writing our software by hand, we want to develop a software system that will create software for us automatically. And uh, specifically we're doing it for device drivers. So we're developing the driver synthesis tool and the idea is that uh, it takes a formal specification, a formal model of an IO device such as a network card or a hard disk and it reverse engineers this model and uh, automatically creates a driver for it which can for example use, be used in Windows or Linux to control the device. That's amazing. So you get the specifications from the manufacturer and you pop that into the program and it reverse engineers it to make the driver. Yeah, that, that is exactly how it works. And it's so useful. I mean, there's so many times you find drivers that either don't work or they only work for a specific operating system or they work a bit. <laughs> that is true. So the fact is that most of the time when you see the blue screen of this in your computer, 70% of the time it's caused by device drivers. Wow. Uh, because there are so many of them and because they are so hard to write. Well, you're getting software to write good device drivers. <laughs> and with this other project, you've got this secure computing with the validated microkernel. 
So you think we might actually go to the promised land of computers that just work? Well, that, that's uh, our grand challenge. And uh, I, I think we're getting there. Certainly, there's also the two big steps that we've taken already, the verified kernel and uh, uh, synthesized drivers. Wow. That, that's awesome. Well, Leonard Rizik, thank you very much. That was Leonard Rizik, writing software to write software to control your hardware. There's people I've interviewed previously who are looking at cognitive load. Cognitive load is when you're doing too many things at once. Whether you're tired, whether you're in pain, or whether you're trying to multitask, your brain only has so much working memory, and when you start running out, you get stressed, and they can tell that from your voice. So they're looking for people in call centres, for example, or anywhere else where you're speaking while you're trying to do many things, and if they pick up that you're very stressed and therefore you need a break or possibly you need someone else to come and take over, then managers can find that out and check on it. And you can find that in a previous diffusion. So this is just an example of some of the things there. So I've interviewed quite a few people here and we'll be playing these interviews over the next few weeks on diffusion. So there's all sorts of really interesting things. So there's data mining, there's privacy, there's implants, there's video technology, there's new types of chips, and there's security. There's much, much more that they're doing that I haven't gone into. It's well worth checking out their website, nicta.com.au. Thanks, Ian, for that report on TechFest 2012. Listen to Diffusion for more Nectar interviews in coming weeks. Great scientific advances are oftentimes sudden accomplished facts before most of us are even dimly aware of them. Breathtakingly unexpected, for example, was the searing flash that announced the atomic age. Equally unexpected was the next gigantic stride. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio, diffusion at 2ser.com, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network, into Sydney on 2SER, and over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Some people will do amazing and bizarre things in the name of love. Others will do it in the name of their country. But nothing, nothing compares to what some will do in the name of science. On this week's In the Name of Science, we delve into the archives to bring you Professor Rick Shine talking about fishing for snakes. I have fond memories of a small island off northeastern China where small birds uh, migrate every year from uh, the forests of Southeast Asia up to Siberia to breed and they and their offspring come back again in, in, in autumn. And there's a little island that sits just in exactly the right spot to serve as a stepping stone for those birds on their migration. And it contains a, a unique species of pit viper, uh, a venomous snake uh, where, that is only active for about a month in spring and a month in autumn when the birds are migrating. And it sits up in the trees and it waits for the birds to come. And uh, we did quite a lot of work there. It's, it's, it's almost a scary place to be. Incredible densities of snakes, about one every metre per metre squared. But uh, some of the work I did was looking at the responses of snakes to different types of birds, working out why they ate what they ate. And so I, I picked up a dead bird that was uh, lying on the ground, a snake had bitten it and 
but hadn't managed to swallow it, uh, you could pick up a few hundred birds like that at this place called Shadow, uh, and tied it to a bit of fishing line uh, on the end of a fishing rod and, and wandered around dangling it in front of these pit vipers in little trees. And it did occur to me that if my mother could see me, she'd probably feel that my career had gone in an unfortunate direction. Did you actually run into anyone while you were doing this particular activity? No, the only other people on the island were our Chinese collaborators and they had, I think, formed the opinion from the very beginning that we were sort of bizarre and doing strange Western things that didn't really make much sense. So that was just another manifestation of, of um, psychiatric illness, I think. Well, for what it's worth, I think you've made a great contribution to uh, biological research and thank you very much for talking to me, to Professor Shine. My pleasure. That was Professor Rick Shine talking about fishing for vipers. I'm Julianne Popple. Stay tuned next week for more weird science on In the Name of Science. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you would like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions, or wild passionate praise, then send an email to diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion at 2ser.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Julianne Popple and Ian Wolfe. Diffusion has been produced by Ian Wolfe with technical support from Julianne Popple. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Larissa Savas. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Looking at the URL, the first thing that sticks out is the colon. And how about a slashing or cutting sound for the slashes? To complete the experience, we might throw in the HTTP and maybe some kind of download sound. www.diffusionradio.com Lachlan Watmore on guitar. Ha, ha, ha,